0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics
1: Podcast.
0: Tonight on Primetime Politics, optimism over healthcare.
2: i just excited to get this done and move on to uh, the next step.
0: Despite getting less than what provinces wanted, Ontario is moving forward with Ottawa's offer. How will the enthusiasm against the disappointment of others affect tomorrow's meeting of Canada's premiers? And what impact will that have on the future of healthcare? We'll discuss the matter. And...
2: It attacks way too many of the rights of the English-speaking minority community in Quebec.
0: The controversy around the government's Official Languages Act. Why is the Prime Minister moving ahead despite concerns expressed by his own MPs? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. We'll get to those stories in a moment, but right now we want to show you what happened just earlier this evening in Laval, Quebec. The Prime Minister joining the city's Mayor, Stéphane Boyer, To take part in a vigil in the city's St. Rose Catholic Church. Now, this was to remember and to commemorate the two children, both aged four, who were killed yesterday when a bus crashed into their daycare. A 51-year-old man is charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Six other children were injured. The church where tonight's vigil took place is the same church where area residents consoled each other yesterday after the tragedy.
3: Bonsoir. tu t'appelles comment toi?
1: Amelia.
3: es en quelle année, Amelia? En troisième. En troisième. un petit garçon de 8 ans, troisième aussi se Merci d'être ici, Amélia. This is a moment to reflect on, on the incredible loss that families are feeling right now on the hundreds of thousands of parents who drop their kids off at daycares across the country this morning, holding them a little tighter and reflecting on the senselessness of this tragedy. It's a moment to remember to come together. The first responders responded as heroes they are, and we think about them as they as they struggle with what they had to do and what they had to see. We think about all the people who rushed to help. We think of the community right now here in Laval and across the province, across the country, pulling together to be there for each other, and to support through the days and months and years of grieving and healing to come. All we can do is be there for each other and that's that's what people in this community, that's what people across the country do.
0: Earlier today, the Quebec premier toured the daycare where that deadly crash took place and had this to say to the people of Laval.
4: I told them to don't hesitate to get some help. It's normal you need psychological help. And uh, take the time uh, that is needed. Don't rush to go back. And of course, take care of your children. And I want to thank uh, the men that were involved Uh, uh, All people were involved right after, in the next seconds after uh, it happened. And uh, the only thing I can say is courage. Ask for uh, everybody and uh, 100% of Quebecers support the people here in Laval. And we will keep following the investigation
0: out of Laval. Let's turn now to health care as premiers across this country will take part in a virtual meeting tomorrow to discuss Ottawa's nearly $200 billion health care funding plan. Despite that large amount, the money still falls short of what the provinces want. Something noted today by the Alberta Premier, Danielle Smith.
4: I think Alberta's share will be about $518 million new dollars and I've already talked to my health minister about how he wants to deploy those dollars. We've already started on a very ambitious reform strategy and it will be helpful. Um, so we're going to be making sure we don't leave any money on the table. And I'm, But I will just express on behalf of all the first ministers, they, they had anticipated that it would be a higher share.
0: What the federal government is proposing is more than $20 billion short of what provinces were looking for each year to address this country's health care crisis. But today we heard from Ontario's Premier Doug Ford and like his counterparts from Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland and Labrador, he
2: is happy with what he sees. It was a very productive meeting. Uh, there's still a little bit of work to do. And again, uh, I always stress this, we have to consult with all the, the premiers right across the the country, but it was a very positive, positive meeting. And I'm very grateful for both ministers to come here in such short notice. Uh, but we all have the same objectives to make sure we deliver better health care
0: uh, right across this country. So how will Premier Ford's assessment of the federal offer affect tomorrow's meeting of Canada's premiers? We'll talk about that in a moment, but right now, let's get some reaction from someone who knows the challenges facing our health care system right now quite well. We're joined once again by Dr. Alika LaFontaine. He's the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. LaFontaine, thank you for making the time again. Thanks for having me. Now, you and I spoke before the proposal was made public. This is our first time to to meet face-to-face and talk about it uh, now that it's out there. And again, the money is not what the provinces wanted, but immediately there is this $2 billion top-up to the Canada Health Transfer with no strings attached. How do you see that helping the crisis in health care that's being felt right across the country right now?
2: The unrestricted part of the health transfer is really important so provinces can put additional money into things that are quite urgent so what do we know we know that health providers are really struggling to maintain the way that they practice within the system as is currently designed you know I do believe some of that money should likely go to salaried employees like nurses to make sure that we properly incentivize people to stay in the workforce I think having that money be put into types of team-based care that have been shown to be effective in the past. You know, in Ontario, there's family health care teams. In Alberta, there's primary care networks. You know, these are places that money could easily flow. And then there are transformational initiatives happening throughout the country. You know, one example is PEI with their use of the medical home model of team-based care. You know, all of these types of approaches do need funding, and, and I think this unrestricted part of the health transfers is one way to do that.
0: Okay, so that's the unrestricted portion of what's being offered. There's also the uh, tens of billions of dollars that would come with conditions. And part of that uh, are these side deals that Ottawa will negotiate with the provinces. But really, to access that money, uh, the provinces have to also chip in on what's called shared priorities with the feds. Uh, We're talking about things like home care, long-term care, community care. Will those stipulations address the crisis that we're in right now as well?
2: so there there are two different types of transfers outside of the under restricted envelope there's the canada health transfer which has the requirement to invest in those areas that you mentioned before but then also invest in data and then there's the bilateral agreements which will be you know more province and territory specific type agreements that also include a stipulation that there needs to be some movement forward in helping workers be more mobile between jurisdictions something that the canadian medical association has definitely called on provinces and territories across the country to enable. And so I I do think that these are actually the right priorities. If you look at the advocacy has been around as far as changes in the healthcare system, these shared priorities are exactly what we've been calling for. And I think when you sit down and talk to the provinces and territories, there's been a convergence of priorities. And you don't often see this in health transfer negotiations. And I think this is a really creative way of having people focus on fixing the same problem.
0: Now, there is this concern. Uh, We've heard it from a number of different parties, the NDP among them, that this proposal uh, doesn't do enough to protect the public nature of healthcare delivery. What's your thought on that?
2: You know, I think the biggest threat to public healthcare delivery is a poorly functioning public healthcare system. You know, we've seen in previous polls, one as recent as this week, that there's a larger than ever proportion of Canadians that actually think private options are something that should be explored. You know, the reason for that is because people are not having good experiences with access. People are not having good experiences working within the healthcare system and so are cutting back hours or choosing to work elsewhere. You know, if these investments focus on these shared priorities, I think we really do have an opportunity to nudge the system in a direction that can change the experience of patients. And if we fix that, then I think we actually do fix the issue that we have with the call for private health care. The best solution is actually fixing the public health care system.
0: Okay, but but the fact that the money is not what the provinces were looking for, does that not uh, almost necessarily uh, create more opportunities or perhaps uh, a turn to more private care within the system?
2: You know, the answer to that is maybe. One of of the biggest challenges that we've had with any type of care transfer that's happened in the past historically is that if you give too much, a lot of jurisdictions just end up doing the same thing. And so uh, one of the big fears is overfunding the transfer. So provinces and territories don't have to choose new directions. The other side of that is underfunding the transfer. So it doesn't provide that adequate nudge, those resources that you need to actually transform the system. So there's that sweet spot between too much and too little. I think the answer of whether or not we've given enough to provide that nudge we'll have to see as provinces and territories move towards signing these agreements and working towards bilaterals. But you know, I'm pretty hopeful that we might be close, if not in that zone, that might be the nudge that we need to actually change the way that healthcare is provided in the country.
0: Okay, actually, let me build on that then. And correct me if I'm wrong here, essentially what you're saying, and that there there might be a silver silver lining to the very fact that Ottawa did not give the provinces everything that they are asking for, because that will, what, create the need for innovation?
2: Well, this this is what ends up happening in healthcare. We're very used to doing things the same way that we always have. Crisis is really the precursor to innovation within the healthcare system. We are in the worst crisis that we've ever been in in the history of the healthcare system. And so people are exploring things that they never would have explored before. One example is, you know, pan-Canadian licensure. We we were very satisfied with the way that we isolated providers across different provinces and territories. You know, with COVID and the other problems that we're having right now with Health Human Resources, we're now being pushed towards exploring these new ways of doing things. There is a danger with giving too much money to the system that all it needs to do is just spend that money to maintain the status quo, that things won't change. And so. You know, the the real question here is whether or not we are in that sweet spot, whether we're in that that zone where we've given enough money to provinces through health transfers to enable change. And I I don't think we'll know that until we give a bit of time for this to work its way through.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering how much time, though, because as you and I discussed earlier, we, we are in a country right now where millions of people do not have access to primary care and have no faith that they'll actually get the care they need in emergency care if they need it.
2: So, you know, one of the great things about how the Canada health transfer portion of this health transfer agreement is written is that data is an important part. So even when we've invested large amounts of money in the healthcare system, we've had very poor ways of identifying whether or not that funding led to any change. So one of the great things for Canadians to have faith in this transfer is that there actually will be data sharing. There will be some sort of evaluatory framework to see whether or not things are being pushed along. Now, if in six months from now, a year from now, provinces and territories are really trying their best to make these changes, and we're finding that despite these changes, there's additional monies that need to be invested. I think at that time, you know, Canadian Medical Association, patients and providers across the country need to call for additional investment. But right now, since we don't even measure those things, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is a starting point to actually change the trajectory of how things have worked in the past. Dr. Alika LaFontaine, really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, let's stay on the healthcare discussion and bring to it right now our strategist panel. Stevie O'Brien is Senior Advisor at Macmillan Vantage. Ashton Arsenault is Vice President at Crestview Strategy. And Melanie Richet is a Strategic Communications Senior Consultant at Ernst Cliff Strategies. Welcome to the three of you. Thanks, Michael. So here we have uh, the health pr- proposal now going to the premiers. We, we are hearing from the Ontario Premier. He's sounding optimistic uh, about it. And really, he's joining uh, what we heard yesterday from both the premiers of PEI and Newfoundland Labrador. So, Stevie, I, I'm wondering how are government ministers feeling now that they have some premiers on site, in particular the Premier of Ontario?
5: They're excited. Everyone is really um, supportive of the, new, uh, of the new deal. This is 46 billion, over $46 billion in new money for public health care. Um, and, and so, so that it's a feeling of excitement. Uh, are some of the premiers, are the premiers asking for more money? Of course they are. They're always going to ask for more money. What I think is really great about this plan is that it's not just blindly pouring more money into the system, which is essentially what the premiers were asking us to do. But it is um, there are it's transformative. The data piece in it itself is particularly exciting, and the uh, I I I think that there is wide uh, wide support for that one as well. We're going to be able to for the first time track backlogs and. Um, access to mental health care across the country. Mm-hmm. That's exciting, that's transformative, that is going to look for efficiencies in the system. So I think I think there's a, an area of excitement.
0: Okay. An air, a feeling of excitement now that premiers, are some, are at least getting on side. But Ashton, I'm kind of wondering what does then that do to other premiers who, who may not be as happy with it? Because of course we heard from uh, Heather Stephenson uh, when the proposal, or just after the proposal came out, and she said generally they're disappointed by the dollar figure amount so here you have the ontario premier expressing enthusiasm ahead of the premier's meeting tomorrow what does it do for the other premiers who may have doubts about this dollar figure
1: yeah i want to touch on a couple of things so obviously ontario is the big dog so if you're sitting over in pmo and you're watching this unfold you're kind of giving yourself a little pat on the back so you know job well done i think ultimately other provinces will fall in line um, to Stevie's point, we're talking about an awful lot of money on the table. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, um, as the premier of a province, you have a responsibility to bring that home um, and you know serve your citizens to the best of your ability. What I actually think we're seeing play out in real time is frayed provincial-federal relations. Um, and I think it's indicative of, you know, we're coming on eight years now uh, of, of, of a prime minister that has at times uh, decided to poke certain provincial premiers in the eye. Uh, and. Unfortunately for him, in, in the case of certain provincial premiers that I will not name, it pays to be ag- antagonistic towards him. So I think we're seeing that play out in real time, but ultimately at the end of the day, I'm a betting man, I think that this is going to get done. Obviously Ontario is on side, we heard good things coming out of the uh, Premiers from Atlanta, Canada as well. Uh, I think it's a matter of time.
0: Okay, but does it diffuse, though, the argument that we heard from Pierre Poilievre? He didn't really speak much about the health care deal ahead of the actual unveiling with the Premiers, but afterwards he says he agrees with the Premiers that it's not enough money. So does the very fact that Ontario now supports the proposal, does that deflate the
1: argument that Pierre is trying to make? Well, I'm going to jump on to another thing that Stevie said. Um, I do happen to believe that this is sh- shoveling more money into a problem that as Canadians we haven't properly addressed. Ever in the history of this country. And the way I look at it, if you look at age demographics and the like, this is a problem that's going to get worse. And unfortunately, there are too many Canadians that are unwilling to accept certain uh, innovations in the healthcare space. And I think that's where Pierre Polyev is ultimately going to make his bread and butter on healthcare. I mean, he's certainly not going to run on it. I don't think it's a red meat issue for him. But we have to unlock some more innovation. And you can't tell me. We're talking about $200 billion here. You can't tell me that there's no waste in the system. You can't.
0: You okay. just can't. Milly, okay. so, let, let me bring you in here, though, because you know uh, it is a large amount of money. But to go back to the premiers, they were looking for $28 billion annually. This is short by some $23 billion plus annually. Mm-hmm. So what does that do to health care, or maybe more succinctly, what fears do you have about health care with a shortfall of dollars?
6: Totally. Uh, I'll disagree a little bit with my colleagues. I don't think it's that much money. When you split it up over 10 years, this is not, as far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as a lot of Canadians are concerned, the transformative help that we've actually been said uh, is coming to both protect and to strengthen health care. I don't see how with this on the table, you do both of those things. I am quite worried, especially as it relates to the human resources problem that we have um, in hospitals, especially in hospitals in Ontario, what that does. um, And when you look at a province like Ontario that has signaled to um, maybe private delivery of care, what does that mean for our nurses and our healthcare workers that are working in emergency rooms? Canadians are already waiting. 13 hours in emergency rooms. So if we're not um, investing appropriately to, to reduce those wait times, I think that gets worse and, and that's kind of scary.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to pick up on something that Melly just said here, Stevie, the, the idea of private healthcare delivery, because you know, we've heard the prime minister, he, he's talking about uh, upholding the Canada Health Act, but that act does not prohibit private providers at all. So the very fact that he is talking about the act and not talking about private provision, does that exclusion mean that the Prime Minister is okay with increased privatization of in the healthcare system?
5: No, absolutely not. I, I don't think you can look at this $200 billion over 10 years for public health care and, and, and say that this is uh, supporting a, the privatization of the system. Uh, the Prime Minister has been unequivocal in his support of, of the act uh, over the years we've taken, I was, I was at Health um, a few years ago, we, we take action against provinces that violate the Canada Health Act. I, I would say in no way is this um, would be supportive of, of a privatization.
0: Mm-hmm. Ashley, what do you think? Because if, if the dollar figures are short again of what the provinces want, does that not back them into a corner to be looking for what is the low-hanging fruit in order to get rid of backlogs, in order to get people care? And, and private providers seems to be something that more Canadians are comfortable with. You know, Ipsos just came out with that poll. 60% of Canadians are now willing to look at private health care
1: delivery. I was really pleased to see that. Um, what we are talking about is a problem that has a price tag that continues to go up, but the service does not improve. This is effectively owning an asset that we are all collectively dumping an extreme amount of money into that isn't appreciating in value. In fact, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. If you talk to people on the street, is your healthcare better today than it was five years ago? I don't know a lot of people who would agree that it is. And so when we're talking about things that we need to do, the system has to change, or to those who are big time zealots about protecting public health care, it's not going to exist because eventually we're gonna run out of ways to fund it. So if we don't get innovative about it, if we don't start to tweak how we think about what healthcare means to us as Canadians, the system's going to fail, and that would be the real shame. Yeah, I'm wondering,
0: uh, from both of you, as people that work with political parties, when you hear Ashton talk about that, what comes to mind?
6: I just want us to be super clear that the reason that our healthcare services are um, maybe not what they once was, is because governments keep cutting. Actually, the funds that go into our healthcare system. So I, I actually quite disagree that we're we're putting more money in. We're we're actually not. If you're looking at it, um, we've seen provincial governments and we've seen federal governments uh, cut the amount of funding that we bring into our healthcare system, and we have nurses and healthcare workers saying help us we cannot help the people that are coming in and that's why folks are, are upset folks are upset because they're bringing their kid in and they can't get the help that they need in a timely way that actually sees um, whatever illness their kid has solved in it in a quick manner so I think um, we need to be super careful when we talk about that um, as it relates to the funds that actually go into our healthcare system. Mm
0: -hmm. You you know, I I will say, Stevie, I think there there is a concern that given the the fact that Ottawa says this is the dollar figure, it does give, some would say, the provinces a bit more leeway to introduce privatization.
5: I mean, this is the dollar figure. They've been, we're going to be entering, or the government's going to be entering into bilateral agreements with each of the provinces for, on a set of identified priority areas. Uh, family health, mental health, um, a few others, and, and, and the, the provinces will be able to um, negotiate with the federal government within that defined space on what, uh, what is applicable to their you know, particular region. But in, on, on the spending, I did want to add one additional thing, that this, this is $200 billion over 10 years for the public health care system, on top of other significant investments that have been made into the health care system uh, by the Trudeau government uh, into long-term care, home care, uh, mental health, as recent as budget 2021, and, and, and top-ups during the pandemic, COVID, uh, healthcare transfer top-ups, and billions in vaccines, rapid tests, other testing. So, so the government is committed to supporting uh, provinces, to providing resources when required, and, and to upholding sort of the public healthcare system. Okay,
0: so obviously we're going to keep following this because again, the premiers will have their uh, virtual meeting tomorrow. Uh, But right now, you know, before we go, I also want to touch uh, upon the government's Official Languages Act Bill C-13 because we we are hearing it's not yet passed. It's still going through uh, the committee and amendment stage. But the, uh, the Trudeau government really seems quite determined to pass this bill or get this bill through even though there is opposition within the Liberal ranks and you know I'll begin with you here Stevie because To speak to a lot of Anglo Quebecers there are a number who already feel abandoned by the provincial Liberals They're now raising concern about anglophone rights within Quebec with this official languages bill is the government Worried at all of alienating anglophone voters in the Montreal area?
5: I think the, the Prime Minister and Minister Pettipaw Taylor are bringing this bill forward uh, because they believe it strikes the right balance. Um, the Harper, Harper was draconian in whipping his caucus. Trudeau hasn't been. You have to look at uh, Nate Erkston Smith, Joel Lightbound. Uh, the Liberals understand that members Liber- uh, have to speak for their constituents. And unanimous agreement amongst 158 MPs is rarely the goal. Uh, it's their job to advocate for, for, for their ridings and for their constituents. I know Anthony Howe's father very well. We've worked closely together. He is a passionate advocate uh, for his constituents, and, and, and he's doing his job.
0: I'm wondering what your take on this bill is, and again, it's it's still working its way way through Parliament. But the, you know, both the Conservatives and the NDP uh, supported the preamble that essentially acknowledges uh, Quebec's Charter in the French language, and and that is protected by the notwithstanding clause. Is there a concern that even Anglophone voters don't have a party if the if the opposition, other opposition parties in the province support? a preamble that supports
1: the notwithstanding clause. Uh, welcome to Canada where asymmetrical federalism rules the day. Uh, you know, I, obviously this is not a one-size-fits-all approach and I think if you know this was popping up in other regions and areas of the country we'd have to do some introspection here. I don't think this is going to create long-term issues. What I will say in terms of caucus discipline um, they're probably looking at the same numbers that I'm looking at and when you start to see those numbers you start speaking out of turn. Uh, the call is coming from inside the House. Uh, they've backed down on gun legislation. Um, they're fighting their own people on C-13. Uh, I think ultimately at the end of the day, this bill is going to get across the line. Uh, I don't think it's going to dramatically rewrite uh, how we feel and think as Canadians. Um, but this is this is a management issue, and right now it's becoming a challenge.
0: Well, for, but for Anglophone Quebecers, particularly the Montreal area, it yes. is a, a linguistic language right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you say to that? I,
6: I think... Um, I I would state the fact of having to take a proper balance to this. I think what we're seeing right now is opposition in Montreal, but we're going to start seeing opposition in other areas of the country. I think that's why we're seeing MP Tawain speak up. Uh, I come from the same region that he's from, and as a Franco-Ontarian, I know how important this is, especially outside of Quebec. So I think if the Liberals don't strike the right balance here, they're going to start alienating folks in, in Eastern Ontario, in Northern Ontario, and also in New Brunswick. So they need to to be careful.
0: Well, again, uh, something that we'll be watching as it makes its way through uh, Parliament, but thank you for this. Uh, Stevie, Ashton, Melanie, thank you for the time. Thank Thank you. We'll keep following the health care debate as the premiers meet tomorrow. But right now, we also want to note the introduction of a private member's bill that has the support of the Conservative leader and his justice critic. Frank Caputo, a former Crown prosecutor and the Member of Parliament for Kamloops, Thompson Caribou, introducing a bill that would toughen the rules around bail in this country.
4: If a person is prohibited under two sections of the criminal code from having a gun, person gets prohibited for serious offences like robbery, possessing a loaded, restricted or prohibited firearm, uh, murder, some of the most serious indictable offences will get you a prohibition, or if a judge has said this person needs a prohibition because that is what the law requires to keep Canadians safe. If a person is prohibited in one of those two ways and they commit or are alleged to commit a serious gun offence, Then, a new bail regime will apply that will make it much more difficult for that person to be released on bail. The discretion will always remain with the trial judge, but what we are trying to do is address the fact that a very small group of dangerous people are committing a disproportionate number of serious firearms crimes.
0: Also making headlines today, more than 20,000 people are now confirmed dead after Monday's earthquake in Turkey and in Syria. Canada has deployed a disaster assessment team to Turkey. Their task will determine how Canada can best help the country. But NGOs are already accusing the government of moving too slowly. Turkey says 6,500 rescuers from 56 countries are already on the ground, with 2,400 rescuers from 19 other countries expected to arrive soon. Ottawa City Council wants the street in front of Parliament Hill to be reopened. Wellington has been shut down to vehicular traffic since the convoy protest occupied the street last year. The city has now voted to remove the barricades but an exact date as to when that will happen has yet to be determined. It will be after March the 1st once new traffic signals are installed and a new design is approved by the city's emergency services. And a new survey says Canadians' trust in government is improving as people put the pandemic behind them. Proof Strategies reports 37% of Canadians trust government to be competent and effective. That is up from 22% one year ago. But overall, trust in political leaders and parties remains lower. And that is our program for this Thursday night. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.